Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show once again, one of the favorite guests we've had on here many times, Ben Myers. Ben is the senior VP at Fortress Real Developments. And he is uh, the Senior VP of Market Research and Analytics, and uh, we welcome you back to the show. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Great. And thank you again for your time here today. And we, we want to obviously get into the reason for the, uh, the interview today again is your new market manuscript is out, um, which is always exciting to see, uh, to see what you've uh, got for us. Um, is it uh, twice a year you do? Yeah, twice a year. Twice a year, yeah. So, and you've been. This is number six. This is the sixth, the sixth market manuscript report. Yeah. So, three years worth of uh, of intensive research on the Canadian housing market. Beautiful. And we want to get into that, but first, of course, we got to talk about the Jays. Um, your thoughts on the Jays, and and how are things looking right now, from your perspective? Yeah. So, it's four games left as. As we speak, um, you know, one game up for the first wild card and uh, two games up over uh, uh, the second uh, the team that's out. So it's going to get uh, very interesting over the next uh, couple of days to see if they uh, make the playoffs and if they're going to have a, a home wild card game and see how they do in the the one game uh, winner take all uh, wild card game. So uh, kind of disappointed in the bullpen lately. Starters have been good. Hitters up and down, so you never know what you're going to get uh, game to game. Overall, what are your thoughts on the season as we're we're get to the end of the season here? Are you happy with what the Jays have done overall? Taking a big picture look, you disappointed? You think they 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 are what they are? They they sort of landed where they should be, or? <laughs> I'm disappointed. Obviously, that they didn't uh, uh, didn't win the division, and uh, you know, happy obviously with their. Uh, with the starting pitching, a little bit disappointed in the uh, in the hitting. Didn't uh, you know? Obviously, we didn't think they were going to hit as well as they did last year. But uh, you know, the the, the drop off and in in uh, kind of getting the big hit uh, is uh, a little bit frustrating. But here they are with a chance to get into the playoffs after uh, you know having not been in the playoffs prior to 2015 for you know 20 some odd years. Uh, we'll take it. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, it's funny because I think I was looking, thinking back to the last time we spoke, which was about six months ago at the beginning of this season. And I think I recall we were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, probably the hitting would be no issue at all, but the pitching would be kind of sketchy. And it was pretty much the opposite of that. <laughs> my uh, my uh, baseball analysis might not be as, as good as my housing analysis, but... Uh... Uh, there you go. It's very, it's it's more unpredictable the uh, um, the baseball market than uh, than the housing market, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, hopefully the Jays, like you said, can pull it through, and uh, hopefully we'll still be able to watch them play for 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 several more weeks. Uh, and it's not just a one and done with the wild card if they get the wild card, but um, exactly. exactly, we will see where that goes. Uh, well, you've done a lot of great work for me here in your manuscript. You've you started it off with sort of the, the major questions that the manuscript um, will address and answer. I obviously encourage everybody to go and download it and read the full thing, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Um, but 
you've got some great questions here that I want to just use uh, as as an outline for our discussion. Some of them, um, and the top one, of course, uh, everybody likes to talk about right now with Vancouver and everything that's gone in there is foreign buyers. So, what what were sort of the key findings that you find on foreign buyers in Vancouver, and you know, from there, like what can we understand about the foreign buyer uh, in Toronto here in our market? Yeah, so I mean, I wanted to look more in depth at this uh, this issue and and kind of get an idea of why people are buying. Uh, you know, why are foreign buyers buying? And uh, you know, it came down to it's uh, you know it's an uh, interesting split. And obviously, we don't know the numbers for for Toronto and Vancouver, but a lot of foreign buyers are buying because they want to eventually immigrate to Canada. So they're trying to get their their foot in the door by by buying real estate. So it's really kind of what they say is pulling demand forward. Um, there's a lot of um, quote-unquote foreign buyers that actually live here in Canada already. Uh, they have already immigrated here. They're going to school here. They've they've taken a job here in Canada and working towards their their citizenship. So that's a really a, a group that um, you know people don't really focus on and 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 think oh well they're they're taking away housing from a Canadian. Well you know what their their plan is to be a Canadian. They're contributing to to our society. So they certainly shouldn't be lumped in with a with the uh, what we call what I would call the pure investment uh, foreign uh, foreign buyer, which is simply buying a home um, to store the, the value of, of of the currency to to get their money out of a, a country that they they worry might have some type of political or financial strife, and uh, and I think and I think it also needs to be pointed out well, there's a difference between a foreign investor that buys a home that they plan to rent out and one that keeps it vacant, right? I think that's uh, in the low-rise marketplace in Vancouver, and certainly here in Toronto, there's a lack of rental single-family homes. I think that is uh, that's a needed aspect of our marketplace. Not uh, not every family needs to own. There's families that uh, that are looking to rent because they're they're uh, in the country for a short period of time, or because of their uh, because of their own contract or something like that. So it's, it's needed to actually have some low-rise rental supply in the marketplace. So they're they're providing a service there. Um, obviously, we're in a market which has tight supply, which both Toronto and Vancouver does, and what we would call an inelastic supply curve. Any increase in demand is going to result in uh, pretty steep uh, price increases, right? So that's certainly something I wanted to, 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 to look out for, and I did some kind of crude mathematics on the Vancouver market, and, and uh, I looked at some different assumptions saying, you know, is this a is this an aggressive number of, of foreign buyers here is an aggressive uh, price and what kind of diffusion by uh, market tier? I know that's a, a, a weird saying to say, but it's essentially what is the ripple effect? What is the, uh, the filtering effect of a foreign buyer buying, which they typically tend to buy on the higher end of the marketplace? How does that affect the homes that they don't buy? So if someone that was in in the market for a, a luxury home now, well, they can't afford a luxury home, so they have to look at in the affluent market. And now the people in the affluent market are kind of pushed down to the mid market. Mid market is pushed down to to uh, you know to entry level, and entry level people are now you know maybe not able to purchase because of this kind of filtering effect there, this ripple-down effect in the marketplace. So, again, that's very, very difficult to assess the impact of that, right? Where I often say, you know, it's great to provide new homes, even though they're slightly more expensive or they're not, uh, quote-unquote, affordable to, to certain uh, people in, the, in the, the mid-market, but people move out of the homes that they're already in into those homes, freeing up the other homes for 
um, you know, less expensive people to get in. So there's this kind of um, you know, filtering that's happening in the marketplace, but it's always really difficult to determine how much of an impact of that was. So I basically came to the determination that I thought foreign buyers accounted for less than half of the uh, the increase in the marketplace. But then again, there's the uh, one more caveat that I want to add to that, and that's foreign capital. So there's actual foreign buyers, so they're putting their name on the contract, and and uh, they're not a, then they're not a citizen of Canada. But then there's people that are citizens of Canada, and they're getting the money that they need for a down payment from someone that's in another country. So that is a whole different ball of wax because it's because very difficult to track that information. The the, the um, kind of the thing that I always talk about is you know if one of my relatives in England died and for whatever reason left me um, uh, you know uh, um, uh, an inheritance of say a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars and say I held on to that and then two years from now I went and bought a, a condominium for rental purposes with that with those funds is that you know is that a foreign purchase I mean I'm a I'm a Canadian is it a foreign funded purchase maybe right but, uh, what if I put in you know, an extra fifty thousand of my own savings into into that purchase. Well, now is it a foreign capital funded real estate purchase? You know, it's it's really muddled uh, how you might actually track that uh, that information. But really, the conclusion I came down to is is that yes, foreigners are foreign buyers are contributing to house price growth, but the bigger issue is actually a lack of housing supply. If there was adequate housing supply, then when these buyers came into the marketplace, uh, we'd be able to increase the supply in the marketplace by building new homes to offset this increase in demand. But because we're not building enough supply, they are contributing to uh, price increases in the marketplace. So that was kind of the conclusion I came to. We wouldn't see as many investors. We wouldn't see as many offshore buyers if we didn't have high price growth. If we didn't have high price growth, uh, if we had adequate supply. What is the barrier to new supply, what are the key barriers in your view of new supply? Why can we not add more supply to the market is obviously screaming out for more supply and, and the demand is so much higher than what we've got to sell. Why can't we just add more? I mean, everybody wants to be a developer, it seems. So, uh, uh, it's a good business to be in, but yet we, we just constantly are, are just not seeing enough new supply. What what is the what's the what's the issue? What's the holdup? I think the, the the examples I always give. I used to live in Dallas. I, I went to university there. I, I worked there for a year after I graduated university. And the thing about uh, Dallas, and you know, having traveled to, to Houston on a fairly regular basis as well, is these are fairly new cities, right? So they don't have a real concentration of employment in their downtown core. And they're able to grow the city in all directions. So they grow the city, and then they put in a giant ring road that people are, you know, with several, several uh, lanes of traffic, and everyone can move around there. And then office towers get built around that ring road, and then the, the market grows out a little bit more, and then they build another ring road out there, and, and employment kind of pops up around there. And therefore, prices uh, stay relatively uh, affordable because the demand is being satisfied by the supply and, and supply is not being impeded by water. It's not being impeded by mountains. It's not being impeded by a urban containment policy, something like a, a green belt or the uh, in BC the agricultural land reserve or whatever they're they're calling it, which I which I had no idea was actually as large as it is. It's actually larger than the whole country of Denmark. So it gives you another sense of. Uh, 
of what's driving up house prices in the in the Vancouver marketplace. So whereas Toronto, well, we have water to our south, and then on top of that, there's a there's a country border there, right? So it's not like someone who uh, lived in Rochester could easily just grab a boat and <laughs> and come over uh, to the south. So there's there's no one commuting from the south in Toronto. And then we went on top of that, we layered on the fact that we're an older city, so a lot of the employment is all centered downtown. And then we layer on the fact that we uh, have a fairly uh, inadequate subway system uh, that that makes it difficult for people to get downtown. You know, layer on top top of that the green belt that's taken out a, a bunch of land. And then you know the the last factor is everyone wants a single detached home. You know, everyone wants that low rise home. They don't necessarily want to live in a in a in a condominium. So once the land is built up, which essentially the entire uh, city of Toronto is completely built out. Maybe there's a couple vacant properties here or there, but certainly nothing of of, of any substance. Well, people are going to compete for that uh, the central homes, which drives drives prices up. And so, because it's very very difficult for you to, you know, go out an hour and a half uh, and be able to to get into jobs that are in in downtown Toronto. So. Those are kind of the major factors that I see driving up pricing. Um, Do you see anything? uh, Sorry, Ben. Do you see anything changing? um, Any of those factors changing anytime in the in the near term? It's going to be changing for the worse. Actually, you know, there's been talk about expanding the green belt and uh, and changing the the density requirements for for new developments. Meaning, you know, know, you're going to have you're not going to have any bungalow single detached homes on 80 foot lots. You know, we're gonna we'll be getting stacked townhomes and apartments, and uh, you know, uh, 15 and 14 foot wide uh, back-to-back townhomes. I mean, those are the the types of um, development that they want in in the suburbs now, in these greenfield properties. So, what that's going to do is, yes, I think affordability will drive people to those units, the same as affordability has has driven people to downtown condominiums. And yes, I think there's a there's been a shift. I've talked about it before. People, you know, once people get into condominiums, they they kind of like it. They kind of like the amenities that are that are uh, in downtown communities. Unfortunately, we're getting to the point where, because of financing, because of uh, pre-sales, because of the lag time from buying a pre-construction condo to completing a construction condo, we're not providing enough family uh, condominiums. And then again, the prices. Even if we were, the prices that a developer like myself would have to charge for them. There's still not a big enough um, gap between the two, so families are want to live in in, in single detached and they want to live in a low rise uh, uh, home for you know for room for the kids to play in the backyard, for the basement to put all their their junk, to have um, you know cheaper daycare. Obviously, if, if, if uh, it's expensive for commercial and, and office properties uh, downtown, so that means it's going to be expensive for daycare. So just adds on all these additional uh, layers of cost. So, um, you know, there's this, this, just this continuous demand for that, um, that single family and that traditional townhouse with a, with a backyard that just put additional pressure on uh, those homes in the, in the centralized locations and, and locations that are, that are close to uh, close to jobs and, and close to transit. So, um, you know, barring any type of, a major recession that uh, that kind of comes out of nowhere. You know, I only see prices uh, continuing to go up. Maybe, hopefully, they don't go up at this continuous pace of fifteen to twenty percent. Uh, hopefully, it, it moderates a bit. But uh, you know, I certainly don't expect it to uh, to go into any major negative uh, territory anytime soon. 
you looked at Australia and New Zealand markets quite a lot, and over the past few months, you've been studying those markets. What um, what did you? What are the takeaways for you from from those markets? What in what, in what ways are they similar to Canada? In what ways are they different? Are there things that we can learn from those markets? Or is the lesson really just that, you know, what we're going through in Canada is actually a trend that you're seeing in, in other similar countries around the world? Yeah, I think that, that was one of the number one reasons I wanted to, to compare because I think people think, oh, well, Toronto is, uh, Toronto or Vancouver, we're the only countries that this is happening to. We're the only country where, where house prices are going up higher than incomes and we're the most unaffordable places in the world. But um, and, and, and they're getting really angry. And I said, well, guess what? You know, maybe go to Melbourne, maybe go to Sydney, maybe go to Auckland. The exact same conversations are being had about foreign buyers coming in and, and buying land. And they have the same thing. They have these, these urban containment policies, these, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, environmental protected lands that they can't build on. Uh, they have a lack of supply in the marketplace. So, so what Australia did is they actually require any resale home buyers to register to, to purchase them. So if I want to put in a bid to buy a resale home, I have to register with the government and then they'll decide if I'm allowed to, 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 to bid on it or not. So for the most part, they don't allow you unless you are a current resident of Australia. So if you, you currently live here, you have a job here, then they'll allow you to bid. If not, uh, they don't allow you to do that. They want to push foreign buyers into new uh, housing. They want them to help get new housing built. So uh, in some instances, foreign buyers are, are, are uh, you know, buying 40 or 50 percent of the new housing that's being built in Australia. So because they just, you know, the Chinese buyers, uh, they love uh, they love Australia. So they're, they're buying a lot of the, the new condominiums and, and uh, low rise developments uh, in that market. But then it again, you're now creating a, a new market that's almost exclusively rental as opposed to uh, to ownership. Right. So that has potentially some issues as well. Um, so again, I wanted to, to point out that, and, and then on top of that, just to, to, uh, it hasn't decreased the house prices in either of those marketplaces. So uh, the, the additional supply that the foreign buyers are helping get built, and um, the uh, uh, the resale prices, even though they've essentially uh, banned uh, foreign buyers, um, those markets or both of them are, are still appreciating at uh, a same uh, same clip that they have uh, over the last couple of years. Um, the other interesting thing is that a couple of their banks no longer will provide mortgages to foreign buyers, which is an interesting thing. So uh, obviously they think that there's a potential issue with, with foreign buyers in their marketplace. Um, so it would be interesting to see if, if our banks start to take uh, that stance. So um, I, I think our banks are, based on my conversations, having you know having had major um, banks and, and construction lenders as my clients in my my previous job, I think they're very, very conservative on on who they lend to. Um, so, you know, I, I, I feel confident that they're they're making you know conservative uh, lending choices. Um, I guess my only real concern is when people ask me is it is are our major banks being too conservative and then forcing people to seek out um, you know secondary lending sources that 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 may maybe not as prudent in their their underwriting of uh, of mortgages and is that actually uh, adding more risk to our housing market as opposed to to less? Does do uh, do you find that Australia, New Zealand, they have the same problem that we have in the sense that it's very difficult to actually accurately track the foreign buyer and and how 
you know, what percentage of the market and, and how much of an effect the actual foreign buyers have? Yeah, I mean, both both countries decided they were going to start tracking them um, and start tracking the amount of foreign buyers in the marketplace. So, um, uh, I mean, that's probably something we need to do in Toronto, right? You know, every every transaction, you know, what um, let's track, you know, uh, where that where that person's residence is, right? Uh, current residence, obviously, if most of them are going to be. Well, I'm moving to this residence. You know, that's going to be most of, <laughs> of what the transactions are. But there's It'd be interesting to know about, um, you know, how many are investors, you know, how much investors are buying in the marketplace. And that was one of the one of the things that I think was the University of Western uh, Australia or Western Sydney, one of those two, uh, determined that they thought domestic investors were much uh, more influential on the housing market than foreign investors. And I think that's an important thing to, to, to note uh, because when prices are going up high, you know, people tend to buy that second home or buy that investment property, uh, and you got to be worried about the mom and pops that that maybe not uh, fully understand what what's involved in in being a landlord and, and having an investment property. Right, you're more likely to to make these type of investments in your own backyard. You say, oh, wow, my neighbor Jim just sold his house for two hundred thousand dollars over asking. So why don't we go buy that house down the street and you know we'll paint the walls and uh, we'll. Uh, you know, build a dog shed in the backyard and we'll make millions, right? You know, that's always always my worry about people being too over leveraged and uh and making these types of uh types of commitments. So um, you know, I getting back to the, the sorry, that was kind of on a tangent off of uh off of foreign buyers, but um, you know, I think they're they're making an effort to to track these things and I think uh we should as well. Uh the more data the better. The more that we have the more granular it is, um, uh, the better, the better it will be for everyone, right? I, I'd love to have just a, a some type of national database that 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 tracks who the owners are, you know, what their incomes are, where they're moving from, or where they they currently live. Uh, that can be, you know, sliced up in a million different ways. We can really get a sense of of what's happening, and and there's not this kind of cloud of hey look at the person's last name, you know, that's just, that's just bananas that we, we take those types of things as, as gospel. Uh, in New Zealand, they were saying, they were saying that, uh, you know, 40% of the buyers in, uh, in, in, uh, in Auckland were, were Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese investors based off of the last names. And then they started tracking the market, um, uh, with this, this national database, it turned out to be like 5%. So, uh, you know, it, it uh, the the uh, the assumptions from you know what I call the the, the Twitter eggs, uh, those types of folks are, are tend to be fairly off. Here's a great question: Housing has become less affordable globally for the last 25 years. What is the major contributor to this hockey stick like price growth? Yeah. So yeah, what do you say about that? <laughs> Has interesting findings by uh, uh, you know a couple academics in uh, in uh, in Europe uh, when they studied a, a number of uh, different countries and they wanted to to carve out all the you know the compositional changes you know um, you know with uh, moving towards more condominiums and they tried to strip out all that stuff to to really get a sense of what's happening with real house prices get out inflation get out the the impact of, of lower rates. They, they they noticed that it was you know when they, once they stripped out all these factors there was it was almost a a relatively flat or just a slightly up curve in in, in house prices for a long period of time and then 
um, you know, going back, depending on, on the city, uh, 10 to 15, even 25 years ago in some of the older cities, it really started to spike up. And what they did, what, what the factor that they determined was these cities were able to expand rapidly because of the car, because people were able to now have their own personal vehicle and they were, you know, could, could drive out as far as half an hour to drive into work. And, and, uh, then once it get, got out to an almost untenable commute, which tends to be in, in about the hour range, that's when house prices started to, to really rocket up. And it's only getting worse in these cities because you know, now there's more cars on the road and now there's less parking spaces downtown. And, and, uh, and so it's really, uh, driven up, um, commuting distances is, is, is a big influence on, on house prices, right? So especially now when they, you know, with some of these areas putting in green belts so that, um, that potential one hour commute is now gone because we've eliminated the ability to build homes in, in, uh, in that kind of arc, that, that kind of one hour arc around, uh, where the major employment is, right? So that's, that's really contributed to it. And, you know, I'm, I'm so tired of people saying, Hey, house prices have gone up more than incomes, right? I'm like, it's, it happened in every single major Canadian city, uh, including Windsor. Right over the last 15 years, so it's not it's not a, a reason. Uh, affordability and 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 housing values are are completely different. Right, they're they're completely disconnected. As much as you think they would be connected, uh, they're actually very uh, very much disconnected. A, a market can be uh, really properly valued and be very very unaffordable. Um, people like like to quote this UBS study that came out that said Vancouver is the most overvalued uh, housing market in in uh, in the world uh but they also said that uh New York was not overvalued at all and if you look at uh you know average incomes in uh in New York and the average house prices it's hugely disconnected and, you know and it's it's because you know some of these home prices literally like 80 million dollar condos are selling to russian oligarchs right so it's 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 really throwing off off the the prices in the marketplace so um, you know, I think obviously that's that's happening in Vancouver, and uh, to uh, to a smaller extent, that's that's happening in Toronto as well. Are Canadians prudent borrowers? So are we are we up to our neck in debt, and is it all going to come crashing down? What, uh, what what were your findings on that question? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I just wanted to I, I I asked mortgage brokers the same question for the you know for my uh, my fall. Um, no, spring 2016 uh, market manuscript, and then I asked uh, realtors this time around, um, you know, what uh, of their client base, how many did they anticipate were over leveraged, bought a home that they really shouldn't have, um, and it turned out I think it was eight percent of the the mortgage brokers, about seven percent of the realtors, something like that, or or, or switched around, thought that um, you know their clients were were uh, buying a home that was you know uh, they were over leveraging themselves in, in buying the home, so. Lower than maybe some people think. Yes, disappointing that there's that group of people out there, but uh, certainly wasn't alarming in any way. And but what I really wanted to do is, and like I, I make the point all the time, we need to compare apples to apples. If you compare the average house price in the market and you compare them to the average income, it's it's not apples to apples because it's comparing all the houses, but only you know uh, the incomes are for all the all the people, not just the homeowners. So we need to compare a homeowner. To a homeowner, um, so and I wanted to eliminate the you know the the 
maybe the the investor in the marketplace, the person that's buying a second home or a vacation home. So I really wanted to look at people kind of in the same place in their life. So it was interesting that I stumbled upon a report from Genworth that looked at their some of the average numbers for their insured clients. So that's it's important because they're insured mortgage clients. So they're for the most part they're going to be uh, younger younger buyers in the marketplace. So we're getting a sense of these are the most you know, quote unquote, vulnerable uh, buyers in the marketplace. What are they doing in terms of their leverage? So, um, interesting in Vancouver, in Toronto, they're buying homes uh, that are about four percent, four to four point three percent times their income. So, so maybe a little bit higher than you know your, what your father and mother would have said. Don't go higher than three times your income, but not crazy. Certainly not the eleven times your income or. 32 times your income in Hong Kong or whatever the numbers that always get thrown out. You need to save for 24 years before you can afford a home, all that kind of the average <laughs> home, all that kind of BS stuff that that, that yeah. makes the headlines um, that really is completely irrelevant. What is someone, What is what are the actual homes that people are buying and what are their incomes? So Interestingly, Toronto and Vancouver were putting uh, a higher percentage down than any of the other major uh, major uh, CMAs in, in in Canada. So, despite the fact that they're buying, um, you know, four hundred and fifty thousand dollar homes on average, they have incomes of of a uh, uh, hundred thousand on average, and they're putting over ten percent down. So, it makes me feel uh, not too bad that yeah, that they're they're buying homes that they can they can actually afford and. And, uh, you know, Gen Worth and CMHC are not, um, you know, uh, letting people into homes that they, they can't afford and, and, you know, quote unquote burdening, uh, the, 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 uh, the government with, uh, potential, um, you know, problems because of these, uh, taxpayers are going to be on the hook for these people and they're not, you know, um, verifying their incomes and all that fun stuff. Yes, I'm sure that they're, is uh they have the computer programs that uh, that automatically um you know um do the underwriting for them but you know i think um the proof is in the pudding with with really really low arrears rates um and uh and it looks to be fair, obviously on an average uh it looks to be a fairly prudent underwriting that they're doing that's great ben listen it's been uh, great chatting with you today and hearing all your awesome insights i don't want to take up too much more of your time. And I know there's a lot of great stuff in your report that I want people to read for themselves as well. But was there anything else that you wanted to touch on today or any questions I didn't ask you that you wish I did about your uh, market manuscript number six? Well, maybe not in the market manuscript, but I just want this one last point. It just grinds me like crazy when they when when the media reports or when someone says that there's like 540,000 remaining lots in the GTA and the developers are just sitting on property just waiting for for the values to go up and uh, that's just absolutely not happening are there a few uh, uh, land speculators that are holding on to land waiting for it to go up sure are there do developers own property that's five to ten years out that they don't have allocation for meaning there's no sewer and, and water connections to that area yes but there's not developers with land that could be developed right now it could be building homes and selling them for 1.2 to 1.5 million dollars. Uh, they're not just guys aren't just sitting on those 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 properties saying, you know what, I'm just going to sit here, right? You know, I I'm going to keep paying the carrying costs on this land. I'm not going to employ the and have people at my company doing work that they should be doing. I'm just going to sit here. That's absolutely not happening. Um, and uh, and it's it's just absurd that people keep saying that developers are just sitting on low rise land waiting for it to go up. It's just absolutely not happening. 
Right. I mean, just like any other business, land is the sort of, it's the, it's the input, it's the raw material that goes into producing the final product. And so just like any other business, you've got various uh, inputs that are at different stages. And some of them, like you said, are, you, you buy that land, but you don't buy it and, and for necessarily to build today, you're buying it and, and you're working on your other projects and your other land. You can't develop every single piece of land at the same rate, you know, at all the time it takes time to to uh to go through your your raw material and your inputs before the final product comes out yeah yeah so you go you have to go through the approvals process and uh, and some of the land is just you can't build on it even though you want to you can't build on it and it's going to take a few years before that uh you know uh is, is available to build on so anyway so this that that's just 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 it seems to be coming up a lot lately that uh i think there's this massive amount of of developers just sitting on land. And there's probably even some farmers that are out there saying, you know, just they're stuck on their price. You know, I'm going to wait till I get this price. There's no need for me to, uh, to sell it right now. And I'm sure that's, that's obviously happening all over the place, but, uh, it's not the developers that are the ones, uh, with property that they could develop right now. Just, uh, just, just sitting on it and saying, no, I'm going to wait another 10 years. I'm going to wait another 15 years. The market's hot now, right? You gotta, you never know what the market's going to be like the next day. So, um, you gotta, you know, you gotta strike with iron time. Absolutely. Ben, if you want to get a hold of you or just reach you, um, online and find more about you, what's the best way for people to do that? Yeah. You know, fortressrealdevelopments.com slash news. I, I put blogs up there. Um, I, in the market manuscript, you can, you can download it from there. You know, it's been, uh, this one's been up for about a week. We've got about 1400 downloads. So, uh, it's been a it's been a good little little run there, and, and I'm I'm fairly active on Twitter at uh, at Ben Myers two nine. Unless you call me a name, I won't block you. And uh, <laughs> always up for a, a housing conversation or two. Great, great. Thanks a lot, Ben. Appreciate your time today, and we'll hopefully have you again soon. Perfect. Thanks, Andrew. Okay. Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.